Today is September 27, 2012. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Mark Laubach. Am I saying your name right? You are. Okay. He is an associate fellow at the John B. Pierce Laboratory and associate professor of neurobiology at Yale University School of Medicine. Hi there. Hi. So his laboratory works on the neural basis of executive and motivational control, focusing on learning-related changes and effects of aging in the frontal cortex and basal ganglia of rodents. That's right. Okay, great. So around the room, we've got Todd Troyer. Hi. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. And we've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. Back from hiatus. Yeah. So um, I thought we'd start with a little bit of comparative anatomy of of rodent frontal cortices. Um, So could you make a pitch as to the relevance of rodent frontal cortices in modeling human uh, cognitive and motivational processes? Sure. So the rat and mouse have brain areas in their frontal cortex that are um, found in all mammals, monkeys and people and cats and dogs. They're an ancient limbic cortex, usually called singlet cortex. Um, It's kind of simple compared to the more advanced cortical architectures you see in the motor system and sensory systems. And it's densely connected with areas of the brain that control visceral function, like the hypothalamus. in fact, it's been reported there's more neurons in those frontal cortical regions that project to the hypothalamus, the part of the brain involved in feeding and sleep and wakefulness, than to the thalamus. It's an extremely dense connection. And the areas, you know, while they have expanded in the frontal cortex in primates, they become granular in primates, they have a layer four. The areas on the singlet gyrus don't. Um, and the few minor differences, there seems to be pretty major consistency across all mammals having these areas. So when we see psychiatric illness, we see so many problems in those regions of the brain, and we start to think about what it means when we have an area that controls feeding, sleep, sex, the variety of brain functions that become strained in psychiatric illness and neurological dysfunction, controlling oneself in a crowd, getting things done on time. they may actually go awry when we see pathologies in the frontal cortex because of these really important basic functions of limbic cortex. So I think it's really important to study them in rodents. A lot of times people uh, picture the frontal lobes as the newest, greatest things that are only found in, in people. Right. The sort of medial bank is not the newest and greatest. It's maybe the greatest, okay. but it's not the newest right. uh, cortex. It's... That's what you're saying. Is basically that's been there for a long time. That's been there for a long time. What about the dorsal and orbital parts? Absolutely. So, so there's been um, a series of papers written debating whether or not rats have prefrontal cortex, and I love this argument. And um, (laughs) some groups argue strongly that rats do have pre. I'm I'm making scare quotes, listeners. Prefrontal cortex, right? Which means dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. And there's people writing reviews and findings, interpreting rat findings as representative of working memory and dorsal lateral prefrontal function. But other people, especially anatomists, some anatomists who work in primates, like Todd Preuss, made an argument a long time ago that there's no granularity in the in the rodent. The areas that you find in rodents are found in monkeys too. There's dorsal medial motor areas and singlet areas, and these are largely comparable across species. I think the reason that this has gone on is for grants and justifying research in the past where there wasn't a lot of interest in the singlet cortex until maybe 15, 20 years ago. We had no idea what it did. I think we do now. But during that time, everyone's trying to justify their work in rodents in line with dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. And so papers claim that rats have prefrontal cortex. Now, 
it's kind of become interesting to study interior singlet, and people haven't made this debate in a while. Although I just read a review published in Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience that again claimed this area is dorsolateral PFC of rats, and it's simply not, I don't think, supported by the evidence. Um, the orbital areas also evolve massively in primates, become granular, and the areas that are uh, in rodents are very limited agranular areas like lateral orbital cortex and agranular insular cortex, and those areas are found in monkeys and people too. So yeah, the, we, don't, we don't, in rodents, have those highly granular regions, but we do have the other limbic areas that are ancient. So the fact that there are all these agranular areas, that affects presumably the recurrent connectivity and some of the synchronous, I mean, some, some of the sort of field potential t level stuff. I mean, is there, and yet you're, that's what you're looking at in a lot of your work. There's plenty of recurrent con connections in limbic cortex, too. So I mean, neurons similar. have massive dendritic structure. However, a person I like his work a lot is named Guy Elston. He's done anatomy studies on dendritic complexity across different parts of the visual cortex, the infratemporal cortex, into the singlet regions and dorsolateral areas and macaque monkeys and lower primates. Um, I wish he'd do it in rats. But there's this change in dendritic complexity that occurs as you move across the visual system into the temporal lobe. It gets really advanced when you go to dorsolateral prefrontal cortex compared to singlet. The neurons are, are very complicated. They have lots of recurrent connections, there's no doubt. Um, I'm still not sure what layer 4 is in dorsolateral PFC or the rostral orbital cortex. I, it's not what I work on, so I don't know. But it's supposed to be the thalamic recipient zone, right? But that's yeah. in sensory. I don't know what it means for those frontal areas. This is not my area of expertise. Well, the granular cells presumably are spiny stellate cells and not, in, not the cells that we normally think of as performing auto-associative network functions. Uh, I would guess that the granular areas have vastly more recurrent feedback or anything like that. Maybe they have more uh, orthogonalization of the input or something like that. Okay, so some of the big ideas that crop up every time you know, prefrontal cortex, frontal cortex is brought up is, you know, these ideas of inhibition, motivation, executive control, uh, sequential uh, behavior. So can you talk about some of the overlap in these categories or relevance to your work? And in your work, you tend to talk a lot about adaptive control. And um, is that in some ways sort of a grand unifying principle there that pulls everything together? Can you just yeah, flesh some I, of that? I think adaptive control is a great term to solve a lot of controversies about how we interpret these areas. Because what it just means is that you take what you did last time and use it to guide what you do this time and improve your performance so you adapt to the conditions you face. And this is really what you see when you find damage in these areas. People don't deal very well with unexpected adversity and this can lead to catastrophic failures in performing real-world tasks. Um, simple home tasks, you know, fixing a, a, a machine in your house or doing something serious like um, flight control. I mean, these things could be disasters if people can't keep things in mind over a period of time. And that there's a c component of what people call working memory about that. Um, and that's another concept that's been thrown out to explain things. But it, that doesn't really account for the inhibitory problems that, that exist and adjustments in performance, and performance monitoring, things I talked about in the talk today, performance monitoring and adaptive control. There's really been a, you know, a, a number of terms used, but I think this new adaptive control theory makes a lot of sense. As I understand it, it's it's been around, the, the term adaptive control has been around for a while, but it has been a bringing together of these concepts in the last couple of years um, amongst human ACC researchers, and this is one of the terms, along with the conflict monitoring views, that continue to exist for. Could you kind of review those two ideas for us? Sure. So, contrast them, maybe? As I said in the talk, one of the early discoveries for the importance of this brain area was that there's an error detection system in it based on human EEG recordings, 
then later there were fMRI studies that used tasks that measured not only errors but also difficulty or difficulty in decision making proposed conflict monitoring as a view and there's been a series of studies since that time that have supported and not supported those interpretations it's been quite controversial and it seems that the more recent work continues to show that the systems have a role in performance monitoring, have a role in adjustment of performance. They also have an anticipatory role in guiding actions based on what happened last time and what you're about to do, given the information at hand. And really, this is, I think, what is meant by this adaptive control idea. That it's, 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 it's the glue for the cognition. It's glue, gluing the affective state of the animal and the cognitive state of the animal together to allow you to integrate and improve performance when things go unexpectedly wrong. So basically, your animals are doing some kind of a task that requires timing, when they make a timing error right. on the next trial, they're more careful about their timing. They are more careful. They typically slow down and go slower. Whether they were, if they were slow last time, they'll actually go slower again. If they're too prompt, they were too quick, they'll slow down. And in general, the evidence is that they improve their attention to the task details. So I didn't get into detail on this in the talk, but if we vary the intensity of cues, so if we play a loud tone and look at the animal's response time versus a soft tone, and we compare those two types of tones, based on whether the last trial was correct or incorrect, the animals are faster to detect and respond to a soft tone after making an error compared to if they were correct. So there's, there's a sensory component to this. So they're adjusting their, their response criteria, in a sense, based on what happened last time. And that's the idea of adaptive control. Boost attention to that cue, make sure you're right next time. So switching away from your internal prediction and paying more attention to the to the sensory cues. That's right. That's right. And if you've been too premature, you might also then pay more attention to your internal state to slow down. Maybe to apply more inhibition to your actions or just generally be more calm in performing the task. So in like, so for example, um, single unit recordings, would you just, um, does something like the signal to noise ratio um, improve uh, as if, so do you have a better signal to noise ratio if you had an error just pre previously? Well, this is a really right. good question, and we're in the middle of a podcast, but I should go look at that because it's known that signal-to-noise ratios change in working memory tasks, as Amy Arnston, right. Patricia Goldmark, Keisha's lab has shown for, for, for many years in their recordings, and honestly, that's the first time anyone's brought that one up, but we should go look at that on errors. I, I, would, I would actually suggest that post-error, there's going to be a higher baseline because of this increase in theta oscillations that we find in the system. Yeah. So um, that might mean that you're actually going to be squelching out some of the more punctate responses within the system and relying more um, on other sorts of slower signals that would make so it. The clear. kind of signal to noise ratio you guys are talking about is the background firing rate goes down uh, and the response maybe gets bigger or maybe stays the same right. so that the difference between the response right. and the background gets. Yeah. We haven't looked at background per se yeah. before, we should. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's a good question. This would be the ratio of the two. Yes. So the background could go up, but as long as the response itself goes up even further, right. then that's okay too, I suppose. Right. Yeah, we just haven't looked at it yet, but we will yeah. definitely look at that. Usually, an error like that in people is associated with a little bit of an emotional response. True. Yeah. Right. And uh, so, a cingulate is sort of sometimes associated with emotional responses and things like that. So you imagine this is a, a window on uh, on that, in the in a, like, is it possible to to test with, with some in some independent way whether that uh, whether there has been an emotional response, like galvanic skin response, or something would be good. If in in fact, yeah. So that's an important point. I, sh I showed a, a reference to a study that showed altered autonomic control following singlet damage, and there had been reaction time studies done in Europe 
measuring pupillary dilation and galvanic skin response and heart rate, and they do change around the moment of an expected cue. Um, we haven't done it in the rats. We had a, an idea a few years ago we never pursued was to put a microphone in the box and see if we had the Homer Simpson doe <laughs> response around Harris, but we never um, you know, really took that as more of a joke. But it would be interesting to see if they do vocalize when they make a mistake. And there's been reports in people looking at sucrose and high-intensity sweeteners that there are vocalizations made by, by rodents, so it's possible you could even get a... And no shit response out of the rat, um, which might be probably what this is. Again, adaptive control is not just the motor side. There's this affective part of the cingulate, and so you're going to control your emotions as well as your motor behavior to ensure you're right next time. But so isn't the so I'm trying to get at the what the because I don't know the history of the term what we mean by adaptive control versus say reward based learning. So you get stuff in and the stuff that you. Uh, like to do, you get rewarded and you do more of it, so you controlled your behavior to get more rewards, so it's adaptive in that sense. But it seems like what they're talking about more with adaptive control is somehow uh, adapting control strategies and and balancing different things. And so you have now, you actually, this is a kind of a meta control in in some sense of of dealing with all these uh, emotional reward uh, task responses and integrating and balancing those kinds of uh, of different competing things about behavioral strategies. I didn't get into it, and it would be a whole talk on its own, but we've, d- we've done a modeling project with Chris Eliasmith's group in Waterloo, and that's one of the ideas that there's a control signal encoded at the population level, and it is really control. It's controlling variance in the motor system. We know that from some infusion, combining mucimol infusions in the cingulate and recordings in the motor cortex, where it does change the activity levels in the motor cortex when you turn off the cingulate. One of the ideas is that the system is integrating a control signal. It's not just learning. It's not just a reinforcement learning explanation, but there's actually this integrative ongoing process that unfolds in the cortex over time within a trial and then between trials that lets you track the history of your recent performance. And one of the papers that it was talking about was a a study where we found the neurons that about 10 to 15% of the cells will fire after mistakes are made. They basically maintain the rate they are at during the delay period on the previous trial. So they keep on firing like they're looking for reinforcement. It doesn't come. They stay at that level until the next reinforcement is delivered. And this is, again, it's, it's a tracking signal, but obviously it has downstream influences on the motor cortex and probably through basal ganglia also on other aspects of, of motor activation. But so how is that different from like an attentional signal or... Uh Attention? Yeah, in the sense that there would be a vigilance signal. So they have it, error, it, it like so difficult to start in this kind of task with the design we have that associate attention and vigilance and arousal. Uh, we need additional measurements to do that, but it gets, gets really complicated to parcel those out. Um, the attentional side is what we look at with, with cue intensity effects. So that's something we definitely can implicate. But in terms of there being any arousal effects, we haven't measured it yet. These are technical terms. I mean, attention sounds like a, a word we think we know what it means, mm-hmm. but we probably don't know what it means mm-hmm. exactly. Could you give us a, a, a sort of a quick uh, sure. rundown about what it would be the difference between attention, vision, vigilance, and adaptive? Well, arousal. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that you can fit adaptive control to that. I mean, arousal just means the animal's more excited on the next trial after making a mistake. He's just generally more active, um, engaged, and in terms of um, vigilance. It basically, along the lines of signal noise, people like Gary S. and Jones have looked at this. You're just going to get boosted throughput of signals, and the animals um, really increasing the general gain on the system in a more specific way than just being aroused and, and running around or and getting excited. And then the attentional side is really focusing on the information that's useful in the task 
and, and responding to more difficult discriminations, like, like the Q intensity, but to really, like even in the case of Q intensity, we needed to do things like vary the background noise. There's a lot of other things to do to really hone in on this. The, the effects so far just suggest that as an interpretation. It certainly isn't the end of the line for these really simple experiments. There's still more work to be done. So I think that, I mean, it's clear why that uh, issue came up, because if we're, if I'm tr if I'm successfully predicting everything, I don't have to pay too much to sensory attention to sensory stuff. And I use the word attention, but I use it in a non-technical way, maybe. But uh, uh, the what you mean is vigilance. Okay, so <laughs> well, you're paying attention to the task as right. opposed to being vigilant for, for something external. That's right. So I could be paying attention to my own internal predictive <clears throat> capability, but I suddenly realize it's failed me. I am going to go back to sensory guidance rather than Actually, internal guidance. That's exactly what we mean in the posterior slowing effect would be proposed as a change in response strategy. Because the optimal subject, and you can model this, so Trevor Bakerley, who worked in my lab, he's from Chris Lassman's group, he just did differential equations modeling of, of these kinds of tasks. And, uh, you know, a system that's dumb is going to respond on time every time. It's not going to respond prematurely. But for some reason, animals and people make these premature responses. And maybe it has to do with practice. When you're learning waiting for something to happen, you get reinforced, you respond to the cue, you start to become an expert at the test, you start to play it as a game, you start to speed up. I don't, don't want to say that rats can do this, but I know people try to beat their performance, they try to get better at things, and you start to make mistakes. Whereas if you just knew what to simply wait and respond, there's no reason to respond prematurely. Um, so simple systems, just mathematical systems will do that. When you add in the controlling systems, you actually can start to induce errors because you're trying to control things, and sometimes the calibration's off. That's one of the things that phase, phase aspects of these, these signals are, are controlled in part or associated with oscillatory activity in the system, and you're having these cyclic processes going on. One possibility is they're being used to calibrate. It may not be that they're really so much exerting control, the phasic aspects of the system, but they're calibrating the activity in, in the system. Um, by changing the way that the spiking activity can be integrated across many neurons. You give them something to tune into, and you're able to calibrate your system down and be more precise in, in evoking a response. So I have a question. Yeah. Um, so you, a lot of your work, and you just mentioned that you're looking at phase, which is from EEGs, and then spiking activity, which is from single units. Um, the way I understand it, EEGs are not spikes, right? right. They, they're more synaptic potentials whereas single units are action potentials at the level of the soma. So how, how do you go about correlating those two? They seem to be different things. So if you're getting an EEG that's somehow localized to an area. Local field from there. Yeah, is that, is that actually reflecting the input to that area, whereas the single units is actually reflecting the output? Right. Or, or what? I mean, as I understand the current thinking, that there's a combination of both synaptic activity and the output activity measured in, in the local field, and it's, it's still not entirely proven what is the source of it? But I wish someone would, someone would model, you know, the full field. But it's also a non-trivial thing yeah. to model. Um, <laughs> Probably why it hasn't been done. <laughs> uh, you, there's there's been an effort to link neuron with some a spiking simulator named, named neuron with some field simulators used in physics. But uh, I haven't it's been done in some parts of the brain, but I but places where there are not too many different cell types doing too many different things. It's a hard thing to do. I think in the cortex is probably a worst case scenario. <laughs> you'd have to create. The field is generated by every different neuron type and all their different ge geometry. It's a little bit easier in a place where the cells are basically all the same type, and that's where it's been successful. Okay. So, so just to answer your question, what we've, we've done is there's a couple of techniques. 
So one is to do what's called spike field coherence. So you're, just, you're taking the, the, the spectra of the spiking activity and asking if it's linked to the uh, spectral values for the fields. And so you want to see if spikes are, in a sense, nested within, if they're occurring within the little ripples that comprise a, a local moment of theta activity or beta activity. And that's what a lot of folks have done. It's, it's useful. It, it sort of shows you it's there or not. It doesn't really tell you if it changes how the neurons fire. The other thing we can do, and it's something that we've been working on with some papers that are in progress right now, is to use regression and try to predict spike counts as a function of behavioral variables, like in the task we have, how long the rats wait, how quickly they respond, but also in terms of the local power and phase of, of for example, delta and theta oscillations. And I'm surprised this hasn't been used more in the literature on LFP because you'd really want to, well, I think what we all talk about is the firing rate or spike count of the neuron during some period is somehow related to and potentially associated with change in the fields. So regression would be the way to do this and, and just ask, is there a significant influence of theta power on spike count? I haven't seen that in many papers. Most is, it, is it potentially because you may have inhibitory inputs and excitatory inputs? And in terms of synaptic potentials, they may appear the same in an EEG, or, or do they? And, and therefore, you won't get such a good correlation in terms of spike output because one's going to tend to make them fire less, the other's going to tend to make them fire more. Yeah, I don't think we can, with the kind of recordings we're doing, make any interpretations yeah. about that in the system we're in. But I do know that, I mean, there are correlations in our unpublished data um, where we've looked at the effects of reaction time and, for example, delta power, particularly in the motor cortex, is strongly correlated with uh, reaction time. The phase of delta when the cue comes on is an enormous predictor of response time. And the cells that track reaction time, of course, are then correlated with that. But if you look at when they occur, when the, the spike counts are most interesting, they're right at the time when you see the delta change or just after it. So it would be suggestive of some kind of internal um, integration. I st we still can't prove the fields influence spiking and vice versa. I don't know how right. you do that. It's a timing task. It needs a clock. Those little oscillators seem like they could be clocks. But it seemed like the, the uh, importance of the oscillations was lowest when the animal was Absolutely. finding it on his own, and yes. then highest when the animal was using sensory input so to time it. The neuron spiking models the time. It turns out, um, okay, Chris Eliasmith that we started collaborating with published a paper a couple years ago um, based on Renolfo Romo's work where they looked at frequency information maintained over delay periods, and they tried a whole bunch of different networks to look at how information could be stored and time could be stored. And they proposed something called double integration in their paper. If you chain two integrator networks together, if you take a um, recurrent pool of neurons and put an input into them, they will maintain a record of that input for some prolonged period of time. And you can turn that off by having an opposing input to a network. If you take that kind of integrator and then feed it into another integrator, the second integrator will ramp up over time during the period of integration and thus store time of which that information has been stored. The first this, neurons are steps, the second neurons are ramp. And that's all it is. But we've used his Chris's software called Nango to model networks doing this, and then we've, we've simulated spikes from the networks and analyzed them with population analysis methods called principal component analysis. And we get the same leading modes, same principal components from our recorded data, and the spikes produced by this double integrator network. It's fascinating. So it's the same patterns that come out, literally like they're exactly the same. And um, the model lets us look, look at errors. So what happens in errors? And it turns out when the rats make mistakes, these networks go into strange places that if you can look at the networks in a large state space, they tend to sit in a kind of cyclic attractor during each trial that starts when they press the lever and ends when they get a reward. And they'll go through this loop over and over again. But if the rats make a mistake, 
the network goes out of orbit around into a number of other states that it hasn't been in before, and the next trial starts. So there's two things about that. First, the patterns of activity are visiting new ensemble activity states that haven't been experienced when the animals are correct. And so a whole lot of synaptic patterns are going to be expressed after a mistake, and you learn potentially then from what you did wrong. It's an explanation of learning. But also, surprisingly, the activity goes up when the error has been made. There's more variance in the system. You've got a whole lot of new state spaces that are being explored, so errors aren't actually calming the brain down on the next trial. Errors are actually leading to higher variance as you then solve the problem. It's kind of a counterintuitive view of what goes on. The fields go down at that time, possibly because of increased locking, and you've got a lot less power. It becomes very constrained around that frequency of very narrow around 8 hertz where the cues come on. So why is that counterintuitive? The like part that, about noise? That, that, that the air, that, no, that the activity goes up after an error. So, I mean, counterintuitive just from like on the street conversation. If I said, okay, I made a mistake and what will I do next time? Most people say you pay attention, you calm down. But it turns out that within these simulations, the system actually goes into a higher variance state. It explores more activity than it normally would. It, new things are explored after the errors. So it's not actually calming down. It's actually going through a much larger exploration. But that's what, what most people do when they make a mistake. That's what, for my okay. that's my intuitive thing. You have the uh, the Homer Simpson oh crap moment, and you got to try to figure out what I got to do different so I don't screw up last like I did last time. During the period between, but when you do the next trial, you're actually you're you're calm. I mean, I would think most people try to calm down once they screw up. They don't. Stay excited. Maybe they try, <laughs> but a lot of times right. they're not successful. I mean, if you're ever were trying to learn to play piano and you make a mistake, the like the reaction to the mistake is likely to cause a cascade of mistakes. Right? It could. It could. And so this exploration, this idea of exploration that allows for the flexibility of behavior. So talk about what happens in aging systems in sure. So the results we found so far are that with this couple of different studies in aging, one of them was to look at memory tasks that are called delayed alternation and recorded in old rats. And the second was using these reaction time and timing tasks to look at brain activity in old rats. What we found is that the, the aged brain, which has um, been shown by many groups to show uh, a loss of dendritic complexity with aging in the, in the prefrontal cortex. So here we find that the cells are generally less responsive to the task events they specifically don't respond to events that predict rewards um, in a delayed uh, alternation task. There's a cue that says, go make your choice, and neurons in old rats tend not to fire to that cue, where many, many cells in young rats fire to those cues. And within the LFP, in that task, we found lots of oscillations in older rats, but they're not really tuned to the task events. They're kind of all over the place. Um, so we went to a test using explicit cues in the reaction time framework that the animals had to respond to that cue promptly. And we found that the phase alignment that we see in our younger animals is just not there in the old animals. So the spiking activity also doesn't show strong phase, phasic changes around the task events. The older animals um, don't show the same levels of performance adjustments than our, our younger animals as well. They tend to be slow to begin with. They're just slow. So young rats, the adjustment in the reaction time test is slow down after making a mistake. And the old animals, they're already going slow. So I don't think it's kind of a floor effect on that. We can't really see it. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not there, but um, they're already going slow. So not much point in slowing. You're already <laughs> all below the speed limit. But, but, um, but the idea really there is that the, the, these network um, activities are more difficult to temporally constrain. And um, we've looked at that a bit in this Nengo model that I mentioned, this large scale model by reducing connections, recurrent connections in the pools, and the neurons show reduced control of action. 
So the integration of what you're doing and how long you've been doing it is then reduced. So it's an interesting model because it started out trying to understand what these activity patterns meant. Um, we sort of stepped in it when we moved into state-space accounts of the model and figured out, well, this might explain learning from errors. But the real goal for the model all along was to try to look at the reduction in recurrent connections that happens in aging, and that does reduce the control signal strength. So it's been an interesting path for me because I never did computational neuroscience like that before. I just did data analysis with <laughs> fancy methods, but it's been fun to learn to model networks. It's, it's very exciting. Okay, thanks very much, Mark. This has been Thank you. Neuroscientist Talk Show.